Let's pray. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father, we thank you for these words given to the Apostle John through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to give to those churches back then for their strengthening and their building up, to give them strength for each day and hope for each of their tomorrows. And we thank you that it's intended for us today as well in the very same way. Lord, may your spirit be at work in us, even in these strange circumstances, to teach us what you would have us learn and live as you would have us live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one Sunday last year, uh, I got up to preach at a church that shall remain nameless and I felt a sudden urge to be sick. I wasn't nervous and I wasn't ill. I'd actually just had a good pre-sermon mouthful of what I thought was fresh water, only to discover that actually it wasn't fresh at all. I know it wasn't fresh because it was really warm, like room temperature warm, and all I wanted to do was just spit it back into the glass. Now, I had a quick glance at the jug that I just poured this drink from, and that's when I felt what Scots would proudly call the book. Uh, there was a film of dust on the surface of the water, and worse, a tiny wee dead fly in it as well. The water had been sitting there surely for a week, and it, and quite possibly a dead fly's pal, were in my mouth, and all I wanted to do was vomit. It was disgusting. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of feeling. You've taken a taste of something, but you just want to spit it out, or worse, vomit it up. Now think about that feeling, and realise this. That's how Jesus felt about this church in Laodicea. They weren't a cold glass of water on a hot day. They weren't even a hot cup of tea on a cold day. They were lukewarm and they, the way they lived made Jesus want to spit them out of his mouth, to vomit them up. But why? What is it that makes this church so nauseating to Jesus? And what does Jesus say to lukewarm churches about whom he has nothing good to say. Well, those are the questions I want us to think about just now as we continue our series in Revelation. Uh, but first, I do want us to pause and mull over verse 14 in particular, and especially the aspect of Christ's character that he reveals at the start of this letter. Now, each of the, le this, each of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 start in the same way. They pick up on some part of this glorious description of Jesus that we have in chapter 1 of Revelation, and they expand on it a bit. So, what does verse 14 tell us? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, those are incredible words. Jesus is uniquely qualified to command a church that he cannot stomach to change because he is a truth-testifying witness. Now, verse 14 tells us he's the Amen. Now, Amen is a word that we tag on to the end of our prayers, but it's not just a way of ending them. For us, it's a way of agreeing. It's adding our yes, our truly. And that's what the word means in Hebrew. It means true, it means faithful in a sense, which is, of course, truth is what witnesses speak. And that's what verse 14 continues to tell us, that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Someone who testifies truthfully about what he has seen. Now that's what Jesus is doing as he speaks to Laodicea about their lukewarmness. 
Now, verse 14 then ends with Jesus reminding them that his words not only have truth behind them, but authority too. That's why he talks about being the ruler of God's creation. It's important to realise that, that as he says what he says in this letter, everything he says in the following letter is not only true, but everything he promises he can do. He has that authority and he has that power. And before we begin to delve into this, do you believe that about Jesus yourself? That his assessment and his counsel of you, of me, of the church, of all things are unerringly true. I guess the test of that will be whether seen and whether or not we listen to his word and do as he says. But I guess with this knowledge of Jesus that we have in verse 14, this introduction, as the one who speaks with truth and power, we can then ask the first of our questions, and this is point one. What makes a church look warm? What makes a church look warm? Well, there are many things that can make a church look warm and nauseating to Jesus, but for Laodicea, there are two things, and the second, I guess, is clearer than the first. Uh, but let's tackle the unclear one first. Whatever verses 15 and 16 mean, it's clear that their deeds in Laodicea are hard to stomach. Verses 15 and 16 shows that. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit, that is vomit in the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek, sorry, uh, to spit you out of my mouth. Now, deeds are what are in view here. Deeds are what Christians do as an expression of their faith in Jesus. James says, faith without deeds is useless. In other words, if you really believe in Jesus, it will be plain in what you do. Now, what's plain for Laodicea is that their deeds are nauseatingly bad. They're either so bad that they're seriously disgusting to Jesus or so lacking in conviction that they're just hard to stomach for that reason. But what does this hot, cold illustration mean? Um, it's, it's not quite clear. Now, some would say that hot equals, well, I'm on fire for God and cold means I'm totally not on fire for God. But well, that would make a lack of zeal in church life and in the gospel, the issue for Laodicea. And fair enough, it could indeed be that. But there are two problems with that. First, it sounds like when Jesus is saying, I wish that you were hot or cold, that he was wishing that the church would be cold. Or now, If that corresponds to dead, that sounds a bit odd. I guess that could only be true if it was the strength of conviction that Jesus had in mind. Well, the second problem with this option, though, is that uh, we end up having to interpret first century words with 21st century meanings. But we need to be really careful with that when it comes to Bible reading, because words evolve and their meaning too. So we must be wary of misquoting the truth-telling Jesus, okay? I guess the second option then is drawn from archaeology. Laodicea is famous for having situationally two neighbours, Herapolis and Colossae. Uh, one had hot springs and the other had cold springs. Laodicea didn't actually have its own water source as the archaeologists have found out so it, the water had to be piped in six miles from one of the other places, can't remember exactly which one. 
The problem is, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was so warm and lime-scaly, even a little bit slimy, it was pretty disgusting. So that if you did take a drink of it, you probably would want to vomit. Now, it's not unusual for Jesus to speak to the churches in Revelation in ways that pick up on something of their city's own culture or features. We've seen that already in the previous six churches. But I guess the difficulty with that interpretation is that it needs you to go outside of the Bible for understanding what this passage says. But the doctrine of scripture held to by evangelical churches like ours is that the Bible is sufficient and clear for telling us what we need to know and understand about what God is saying to us without external sources like history or archaeology, as helpful as they end up being. So there's a wee interpretative hurdle to jump there. There is a third option that, again, draws from the historical accounts of the day, uh, and it's, a, it's that there's a preference in the culture in Asia Minor and Greece for cold drinks and hot, hot days and hot drinks and cold days. That's experientially our um, situation too. It makes both hot and the cold drinks satisfying in whether it's a scorcher of a day or a day to get the thermals out. But it, what that also does is make the lukewarm option the one that isn't the satisfying one. I mean, who likes drinking tepid water? Uh, nobody, of course. Now, which of these three options is it? What do you think? Uh, I can't say for certain. I want to encourage you to be biblical scholars. I want you to dig around. But I can only be as clear as scripture, as clear as a pastor. I'd be saying too much if I said more than what the text said. Now, I've walked through that, though, to help us read our Bibles better, as well as to wrestle with what the text says and understand it for ourselves. I mean, these are the words of the true and faithful witness. They're not for messing with. They're for understanding. That's why we dig around in it and talk about it to this extent. But what I can say with complete certainty from this text is that Jesus finds their deeds nauseatingly detestable. They're so bad that the Christ who loves his churches and personally tends to each one is willing to spit them out and essentially through that no longer associate with them if things don't change. Now we need to pause and ask the question of application. Is there anything like that in Charlotte Chapel? Is there something we do that is potentially nauseating to Jesus? Something we're not doing. That's a sickening thing to Jesus. How could you leave that out, church? We should pray about these things, consider them, talk to one another about these things, because faithfulness to Christ and his word is what we want. So the first thing that makes this church look warm is their deeds. What's the second thing? It's that their wealth has made them self-sufficient. Everybody needs Jesus, but the church in Laodicea just don't seem to. It seems like the church is as wealthy uh, as the city was. I mean, Laodicea was a, a key hotspot for three particular industries. Uh, coins, it minted money for the empire. Clothes, it specialised in like the classiest black outfits in Asia Minor. And medicine, it boasted an eye clinic that pioneered ointments that actually did the eye good and healed eye disease. It's quite remarkable. So it was, because of those three industries, uh, a, it, it was a wealthy city, self-sufficient. Indeed, actually, after an earthquake in AD 60, the city rebuilt itself. People in the city rebuilt the city on the road without any international aid, without any aid from Rome. It's quite remarkable. 
but their wealth had eroded their dependence on God. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Well, there's a definition of spiritual lukewarmness right there. Uh, you're lukewarm if you're living as if you need nothing from God. That's what they were like. Is that what we're like? What do our lives tell us? Because friends, this could easily be us. I mean, Edinburgh, doesn't it boast its own unique virtues in all kinds of commerce and industry? I mean, without taking into account even the fact that uh, we're in the top one or two percent in global wealth scales just by living here and having a roof over our heads and a decent salary, we're in a city with lots of money and therefore lots of opportunities and lots of encouragement to be self-reliant. But are we? If we think we're self-sufficient because we've got a few thousand pounds in the bank, which would be great, or enough to not even feel the hit of a hefty car repair, for example, or if we're self-reliant because of the job we've got or maybe because a mortgage is paid off and the title deeds are ours, this text says, don't be daft. You're still as needy for Jesus as much as anyone else. In fact, the Bible seems to suggest that your wealth may even make you needier. Both 1 James, uh, 1 James, one, that's not, not in the Bible, 1 Timothy and James are jam-packed with warnings about the dangers of wealth. And Jesus himself talked about it during his earthly ministry. Money should have a hazard warning on it for us. Now, it, it doesn't do it anymore, but my old banking app used to allow you to put a personal greeting into it so that whenever you turned it on, this personal greeting would flash up. And I made it 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, where it says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, you will have all that you need, that you will abound in every good work. And, and I need to be reminded of that because generosity is what counts. Focus on money. It's too easy to focus on that and base your happiness on what you've got or not. But we want to be rich towards God. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to be rich with the gospel. Do you? Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, Jesus isn't saying here, rich people make, make me sick and poor people make me happy. No, that's not what he's saying. But he is saying people whose wealth make them deceive themselves into thinking that they're self-sufficient, self-reliant and don't need me, that makes me sick. Because everybody needs Jesus. So Jesus' letter is essentially a reality check for them to this church that thinks that it's doing well. As verse 17 says, you say, you, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Wow, what, what words for them. Imagine that. They dealt in coins, remember. And Jesus says, you're poor. They dealt in fine clothes and Jesus says, you're naked. They cured eye disease way back then. And Jesus says, you're blind. You can't see what's true and what's right. Friends, these are strong words. And it's basically a reality check intended by Jesus to help them and us see that everybody needs Jesus and self-sufficiency is both a lie and a sin. All day, every day, Jesus alone has the hope of eternal life. No one else's words are true. No one else's love is as good and as honest as his. No one else is worthy of our worship and devotion. He alone is the one on whom we rely.
you're not a Christian, this applies to you too. You are not, you are accountable to him. You are his creation. You may think I'm happily, living my life happily independent of God. The very breath in your lungs is a gift from him. It's a gift of what's called his common grace. Now he is eager for you to see the truth about him. And I pray that it would even be through this talk and this letter that he sent to this church way back then that he might use to open your eyes to the truth about who he is. I mean, if this then is how Jesus feels about this church, that they make him, you know, their self-reliance and their deeds are so disgusting, something about them that's so, that, that's so nauseating to him. It really is incredible. It really is astonishing to see what comes next. And this is point two. What does Jesus say to lukewarm churches? Well, what does Jesus say? He says three things to them in the rest of this passage. And the first is this. It's, let me give you some advice. Verse 18, I counsel you, counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You see the connection again? He's saying, come to me for everything that you need. And did you notice his purchase advice as well? It includes three things that correspond to their sins and their sinful condition that he's just mentioned in the verse before. Ah, yeah, you make coins, get gold from me. That, by the way, is faith. You make clothes, listen, Laodiceans, ditch your fancy black number for white and be the bride you're meant to be, the church that's holy and pure. Oh yeah, you've got an eye pavilion. Oh, I can make blind people see. Buy salve for your eyes from me so you can see what's true. The big question is, how can they buy these things from Jesus when they're broke? He just told them that, you are poor. The reason why they can buy them from him is because they're free. And Jesus loves to give without cost, just as Isaiah prophesied, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fear. Give ear and come to me. Sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? And listen that you may live. That's the first thing he says. Let me give you some advice. Second thing, let me give you some assurance. He says, I love you. Now, they may well have doubted that. This was a strong letter. He has nothing good to say about them in this. Surely the vomit comment even struck home with them, made them ask, well, how, how can we be welcomed into relationship again with the one who wants to vomit? at the very thought of us and the things that we do. You can understand why they might think that. But rebuke and discipline should not be confused with hatred or dislike. I mean, what reassurance is there in verse 19? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Well, be sincere. Be zealous, in other words, Laodiceans. People who put their hope in other things and live as if they don't even need Jesus. Turn from your sinful deeds and your sinful ways and live as God's bride ought to live. Christ 
takes the loving initiative here and says, I, because I love you, I rebuke you. Because I love you, I discipline you. And don't mistake that correction for anything but love. Do we think that? Well, to reassure them of that, he then moves on to say that he's so willing to forgive anyone who repent that he's already at the door ready to come in and renew fellowship with them. It's incredible. He's, he says, I'm right outside, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Well, it's so often used as an evangelistic text, isn't it? But it's addressed to a church. And a nauseatingly sinful one at that. But doesn't this then speak to you, speak to us? Speak to us, those who are going through the mill, struggling in our faith, weary of trying to do good and live for him, but always being bad and feeling frustrated at that. Oh, we think Christ is furious with us. He's already at the door. The only thing we need to do is to be reconciled to him is open ourselves up to him again in prayer. Sorry, Lord. Help me, Lord. I love you, Lord. This gospel is amazing. That's all he needs. It's all he ever works with. Nothing else. Uh, in this fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dale or Ortland, buy it by the way, it is fantastic. He says in there, we often think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. You know, face screwed up, uh, cautiously extending the arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. But here is Jesus speaking to a church that makes him sick. And even as he has encouraged them and taught them to repent, he is at the door. As unhappy as he is about their sin, as the nausea suggests, he is right there. Bang, 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 they can hear him. Ready to receive them. Ready to come in and eat with them. That's the beauty of gospel reconciliation. That is the beauty of Jesus' forgiveness. Everybody else in this world, yeah, there's some, there's some repayment necessary. Not with Christ. Jesus paid it all. He paid for all our sin. And he did away with it on that cross. Paid the price for it. Took our judgment upon himself that we might be free of it. So that in freedom, even now as sinners, feeling our guilt heavily, we can come to him and not find someone face screwed up, recoiling, but with arms open wide and a table set. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Believe it, friends. Believe it, Christians. Believe the gospel and live like it's true. His blood covers our sin. His love is that good. Now, this isn't just for individuals, though. This is for churches, this call to repentance, this call to let him in. I mean, I guess we can ask, have we as Charlotte Chapel become self-sustaining? Do we feel like we don't really need Jesus that much? Are we doing fine on our own without, with just our own efforts? Is that why prayer seems so low in our priorities? Is that why 
finding faithful men to serve as elders or faithful people to serve in different areas hard, the encouragement for us is to be earnest and repent, to seek faith, seek Christ by faith, purity and insight freely from him who wants to fellowship with us. Do we want to fellowship with him? Do we want to live in complete reliance upon him? Or is our self-sufficiency a bit of a comfort for us? We're nothing without him. We are completely dependent on him. And it does not matter what size of building we're in or how much money is in the bank, that will never not be true. Maybe you're watching and uh, you belong to another church. Is it unhealthy? Have you, has the church departed from the key truths of the gospel? Is it preaching a different gospel? Left the solid ground of God's authoritative and sufficient word and preaching something else or using it as a leap, for a leap pad or a springboard onto something else? Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, any member of that church hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in, eat with that person and they with me. There's restoration in Jesus and his promise. Well, the third thing that Jesus says to lukewarm churches is, let me give you my word. And this is probably the biggest promise yet given to any of the seven churches. He says in verse 21, to the one who is victorious, Nike, remember, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, that's incredible. Who sits on God's throne? God is the answer. Can we? No, of course not. Who on earth has the authority to do that? I don't know if you saw in the papers recently that atrocious sight of Ghislaine Maxwell and Kevin Spacey sitting on the Queen's throne in Buckingham Palace. They neither have the crown nor the authority to sit on those thrones. It's atrocious. But we, when we, through faith, share in the victory of Jesus Christ, who through his own death and resurrection was given authority, glory, sovereign power, like Daniel 7 says, when he through his own death, he went through death for us and resurrection to be able to take a seat on that throne. And he says to churches, even nauseatingly self-reliant churches like Laodicea or us, come and share my victory. Help me rule the new creation. We'll do it together. Come and have a seat. That is absolutely astonishing. But only those, only those who have ears to hear, only those, as he says in verse 20, hear the voice and open the door, will know that joy. H have you, will you, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not believed the gospel, if his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is not the greatest news that you have ever heard in your entire life and a complete relief when it comes to considering the sinful state that you were in before, I'm not sure you'll have grasped this. You need to repent and believe the good news. Trust in Jesus. He died so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. 
and he gave us this salvation as a free gift to be received by faith. You need only confess your sins, turn from them, believe in the Lord Jesus and enjoy that salvation. Do that, please, if you have not yet. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.